Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. I want to ask my listeners, don't you wish you could get the best medical advice anywhere and any time for free? Well, this podcast, The Smartest Doctor in the Room, we're striving to do just that. We are into our sixth month of this COVID-19 pandemic, and everyone that I meet is tired and frustrated with how it's changed our business and our social lives. And what every scientist seems to agree is that if we had an accurate way to test for the virus and trace the public, we would be on our way to, quote, as they say, crushing this virus spread and be able to return to some degree of normality. The problem that I see, and I, I can, I'm going to tell you a personal story of mine at some point, that right now there's a whole lot of confusion about testing, like what tests are appropriate, which are accurate. So today I'm really fortunate to have Dr. Angela Rasmussen, an associate research scientist from Columbia University, to help us understand how these tests are being performed, and more importantly, which tests are going to be appropriate for the proper situations. And and I'm talking about going back to school, getting back on an airplane, meeting at social gatherings, people who want to have weddings or religious services. How should they be tested? So with that, I'd like to, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Angela Rasmussen to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's really a pleasure to talk to your listeners and hopefully I'll live up to the standard of your other guests um, and be one of the smarter doctors in the room, if not the smartest. I think you're going to be great. And I'll tell you why, because also, you know what I like in medicine? I'm going to, I bring this up too. I like somebody that's bold. You know, I never like wishy-washy too much because in medicine, Although nothing's ever definitive, and I understand that, people are looking for direction. I think that's one of our major jobs. You know, I I don't do a physical job. I do a mental job. And I have to hopefully make that assessment and that risk-benefit advising my patients what's the best thing to do. So, um, okay, we're going to get right into it, Angela. And and eventually, also, I'm going to bring in my own personal story I think I shared with you, which I, I think highlights this whole thing. So the public is hearing a lot about rapid point of care testing, which hardly anybody seems to be able to get. <laughs> I think there's only a few instruments in all of New York. I've been trying to get one, supposed to get one in the next two weeks. And they hear about the PCR testing. I mean, even now, everybody who never knew any biology knows, oh, uh, I'm getting the PCR test, uh, which is offered by the standard labs. But they can take sometimes up to a week to get the results. So could you explain a little bit, I guess, in lay terms, the differences between the two tests so the listeners can understand? Yeah, absolutely. So a PCR test um, works on the principle that the virus has genetic material, um, as all things do, um, and that you can detect this using an assay that, that is called polymerase chain reaction or PCR. And what PCR does is it relies on the fact that our genetic material encodes specific sequences. Those sequences can be recognized um, by other pieces of DNA. And if you do that um, with an enzyme that replicates DNA, 
you can amplify up a bunch of copies of a certain piece of DNA, or in this case, RNA. This is actually a reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction test, or RT-PCR, because the genetic material of the virus is RNA. But yeah, I think that's an important point to bring out, right? Because it just, sometimes it gets very confusing for patients, but because they may have heard about PCR before, which has to do with DNA. So it's good for, but, th- but the coronavirus that we're dealing with now, like HIV, is an RNA virus. So that's why you, you get, you're mentioning it's reverse, tra- uh, reverse transcriptase polymerase reaction, correct? That's right. And, and basically the difference between that and a conventional PCR assay is you have to convert that RNA into DNA before you can amplify it using uh, the DNA primers, which are the things that recognize a specific sequence. Is it less accurate because it's, again, you have to do that other step? I'm just curious, and I hadn't thought about this before. It's not. Um, So with RT-PCR, you use an enzyme called reverse transcriptase that's actually from HIV. So out in the the normal biological world for us, um, we can only make RNA from DNA. We can't make DNA from RNA. HIV and retroviruses can do this thing that nothing else on the planet can do, and that's um, make RNA, or sorry, DNA from RNA. Um, so you use this enzyme reverse transcriptase. It copies uh, the RNA template of the virus genome um, with, with fidelity. So it, it's the same copy, um, and it turns it into DNA. And then you can go ahead and run a conventional PCR test on it. But just to make sure that it is very accurate, um, the type of RT-PCR test that's used for diagnosis is the TACMAN platform. So not only is it using uh, the primers that tell it which sequence to amplify, there's another sequence in the middle there's, that's called a probe to confirm that you're getting an on-target result rather than uh, just amplifying things that the primers you know, may not be specific for um, if there's any cross-reactivity. Okay, so what I want to try to summarize a little bit, because you're getting a yes. little technical, because <laughs> you're obviously a virologist and, and super knowledgeable in this, is that essentially this PCR test, because we tend to think of it, and this is what I want to get to in a few minutes, is like the super sensitive test. It takes those little bits of, of, of the RNA of the, let's say in this case, the, the coronavirus, and it amplifies it so that it can be detected. That's correct. Okay, so you, you would think, I mean, again, and this would be my thinking you know, when I would hear this, and I'm sure for lay people, they're like, wow, so this is, this is the test. You, I mean, we want to know who has very tiny amounts of, uh, you know, of the coronavirus because that's going to be the, the answer. Okay, so with that in mind, let's move now to point-of-care tests, which, you know, we rely on something different. Maybe you could explain. Right. So there's a few different strategies for this that are being used um, to develop these point of care tests. The the main thing that they all have in common is that they're rapid and you can get the results um, similar to doing a rapid flu test at your doctor's. Maybe some of them might even be able to work like a pregnancy test that you could do at home where you are taking your own sample, you're putting it on the test yourself, um, and then it's giving you a result very quickly. And so there are several strategies. Some of them use uh, CRISPR. There's one in development that uses CRISPR technology, which is another way of recognizing genetic material at specific sequences. Some of them are these lateral flow assays, um, and some of them are antigen tests, which look for viral proteins that are associated with the virus particle rather than the genetic material of the virus. Right. That's what I'm hearing. I think the two popular ones, like by Abbott Labs and Quidel, they are looking at what's called the antigen, right? And just so for the listeners, you know, you've probably seen, if you're watching television, the pictures of this coronavirus, 
and you see these things that look like little spikes, which they call corona because it looks like, you know, I guess like a crown. And that's, is that what these tests are measuring there? They're measuring the level of the, either the spike protein or something I think called the M protein in the viruses. That's what they're trying to measure, obviously, the, the levels to see, again, if somebody has been exposed. That's correct. So an antigen um, in sort of old school where the word came from is something that binds an antibody. And in this case, the antigen is referring to the surface proteins on the virus particle itself. And that's the S protein, which is also known as spike, cleverly named because as you pointed out, they look like spikes on the surface of the virus particle. There's also the M protein, which is the membrane protein and the E protein, which is the envelope protein that's in the uh, layer of fat that's around the virus particle. So any of those three things will be considered antigens, and that's what those antigen tests are detecting. Just to get go on this too quickly, because again, again, it gets very technical, but would it, did you feel at this point too that one might be more important than another? I mean, if somebody tests positive on a spike protein versus the M protein, because again, maybe one's a minor protein. It's, not, it's almost like with Lyme disease. That's what I was thinking about. You know, with Lyme disease, you know, people have become very familiar. There are all these different on, you know, that's a DNA test, what's called Western blot, where they look at different, you know, patterns on, you know, on the test. Is this, do you, um, do you have any strong feelings about like, you know, if a particular company is putting out, you know, an S protein, M protein, your envelope protein, that's not as good as the spike protein. Um, I mean, is that important for somebody to know? Um, I don't think it's really important for somebody to know. It's very different from Lyme disease. So a Western blot is actually a protein test as well, but a Lyme disease, the bacteria that causes it has many, many more protein antigens on its surface. Um, so there's many more things that you could potentially detect. With this, there's only three proteins. And for any of those proteins, probably the majority of them will be designed for spike because spike is functionally important also in the virus's ability to infect people. But as long as the, the manufacturer of such a test is validating it to make sure that it's as sensitive as it can possibly be um, and reliable, then I think any of the surface antigens would be, would be a fine target. All right, so we're going to get into about this whole issue about what's called qualitative, you mean how much there is, for, um, sorry, qualitative versus meaning yes versus no, and quantitative. But I want to first share with the listeners my own personal story. Uh, I may have told you this, and I, but I think it highlights the confusion that's going on. So about two weeks ago, I was in my office and I got a call from a colleague that had asked me uh, to, to do uh, COVID-19 testing on him. Because he was going to, he's a doctor, he was going to Europe and his mom had passed away a few weeks ago and he wanted to pay his respects, you know, with all the horrendous confusion going on. So um, he came to me and going to Europe, they were very strict. They wanted like a 72 hour window to know that you were negative before they would let you supposedly get on the plane. So what I did in his case was uh, I was having some good results with a, a saliva test that I think was being done out of Rutgers lab. So I brought him the saliva test and he did it. You know, he spit into the tube and we sent it out. And, you know, he was fine, you know, whatever. He was just, again, doing this so he could go on the flight. So uh, his flight was on a Friday. I think we did this on a Tuesday. So, you know, Wednesday comes, we don't have any answer. Okay, I wasn't too alarmed. You know, I figured I'd give them 24 hours. That would be... You know, it would be nice if it came back, but it's okay. It didn't. 48 hours later came, you know, we're waiting. 
no answer. 72 hours later, we're waiting, no answer. And now he's getting ready to board on the flight. And, you know, he was fine. He's healthy. I felt so bad. I said to him, I, I cannot believe I don't have a result for you. And he wasn't going to miss his flight. This was a very important thing. He says, oh, look, I think that we'll, I guess they'll test me when I go over there or whatever. So anyway, they let him go on the flight at, at that time. And I'm, you know, the weekend comes. I'm back in my office. And Tuesday morning, all of a sudden, my staff brings me a piece of paper with his name on it. And it said COVID-19 detected. So now I'm losing sleep. <laughs> now I'm in a, a panic for various reasons. One, I'm worried about my, my friend, my colleague being sick. Two, I'm worried about he got on a plane with all these other people. Did he get all these other people sick? Then, of course, I reflect back on myself. Uh-oh, now I'm doomed. <laughs> I, I have to get myself tested. Who else did I infect? So it created a lot of chaos in a very short period of time. And I was trying to reach him, uh, so I quickly got tested, and we fortunately were able to get, which we, they can do sometimes for physicians, a very rapid, well, meaning a very rapid turnover. It was still a PCR test. It went to the lab. I fortunately came back 24 hours later negative. So I was happy, but I still was extremely distressed about my colleague and friend, and I was trying to locate him in Europe, and it took me about two days, and I got a hold of him, and I was like really in a panic, and I'm like, again, I'm going to have to break the news to him. And et cetera. And he said to me, uh, Dean, he goes, uh, they tested me when I got off the plane here. You know, they maybe they wouldn't even let me into the country. And I was negative. So I was like, huh? And I assume it was a point of care rapid test because they, um, you know, they, they did it right on the spot there. They didn't wait at all. So with all that going on, I mean, and my head spinning, I saw your article, you were quoted in the New York Times about this whole issue about how, you know, PCR testing and how we're going to get into how, it, you know, it depends on the degree of cycle thresholds. So what do you make of all that? I mean, what do you, you know, I mean, I guess the big question is what, what tests are we, should we be telling patients to get? You know, I mean, I, for example, too, on planes, I, my son just went to France because he was working at the French Open with some of the tennis players. He represents them. And they wanted him to have a PCR test, not even a rapid test. So what's the right test to do? So it's going to be really dependent on the situation. And this, is, this problem has come up because of two things. First of all, we don't have enough testing. And second of all, we don't have consistent enough testing, I guess. And third of all, so three things. Third of all, we don't have sufficient turnaround time for these tests. One of the issues with the PCR test, and it's not really an issue. It depends on the circumstances and the context. But um, when you are getting a result, most of the PCR tests have been approved with an emergency use authorization from the FDA. That emergency use authorization only allows for many of the tests to be either positive or negative. It doesn't allow you to see whether your CT value is low or high. The CT value, um, as, as I mentioned... Can you explain that? Can you, yeah. Can you explain it to the listeners? Because I, I understand it better from you know, from reading more about it and, and the, the, I didn't even know this existed. I, 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 honestly, I think if you poll 100 doctors, they, they don't even know what that is. Right. And this is where um, it's up to scientists to do a better job of communicating these technical details, which is very challenging sometimes with the general public and with physicians. Well, myself, um, so, I, was, I, was, I was petrified for everybody involved. You know, it, it's really frightening. So that's why a test can be a dangerous thing not being inter I always tell patients, you know, now today people can get their own labs on 
their phone from their from their laboratory without even talking to the doctor yet. And I said, you know what? It's great to have access to that, but that's a very dangerous thing because all of a sudden you'll see these abnormals. Is that you think you're dying and you're not? So yeah, this you know, is you- that's a huge issue, and it's come up before with other types of tests. So, for example, twenty three and Me. Um, years ago, when they first came out, they were offering genetic testing for markers of disease potentially, and people not understanding how to interpret that you have a SNP that's associated with Alzheimer's or something doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to get Alzheimer's. But without talking to somebody who can help you interpret that data, it can be very frightening. And certainly with the Theranos um, rapid testing that was supposed to roll out testing direct to consumers, those tests didn't work very well. And so people were getting very alarming test results. Um, Some people with diabetes, for example, were getting bad blood sugar results. Some people were being diagnosed with diseases they didn't have. Um, other people were missing diagnoses for types of cancer that were coming back. So it can be very dangerous to, to get test results just given to people without giving them any context for what they mean. Well, so what's going to happen with this? They want massive testing. Uh, and I really want to get into the nitty gritty of this that, you know, again, all these people getting on flights, you know, I mean, shouldn't they, I mean, again, this is my personal experience now. Shouldn't they be having rapid testing? It's, it's actually, like you said, it, it won't pick up that, that fine, small amounts of, um, you know, of genetic material, the virus, but that could be dead virus or not infectious virus. So isn't the rapid testing, if we had more availability, the way to go? I mean, to get back to normalcy? Is that, you know what I'm saying? So here's the deal. And let me back up a little bit just to explain the CT thing. Um, So what that means is cycle threshold. And that has to do with how the PCR test works. So the PCR test amplifies um, that piece of DNA that it's detecting uh, by doing what's called a cycle. It's a thermal cycle where it changes temperature. And over time, these copies accumulate. After that cycle, so there's a fluorescent molecule that glows, basically, if that passes a certain point, a certain intensity of the fluorescence, that's what's called the cycle threshold. And what cycle the PCR is on, when it passes that point, is the CT value. So if you have a low CT value, um, that means that you hit that threshold sooner, which means that you had more RNA from the virus to start with. If you have a high CT value, that means that you had way less of the virus to start with. And so it takes longer to get to a cycle where you're going to meet that threshold. Well, so people will ask, you know, but I, I want to make this clear. So people will say, well, it doesn't matter. You have it, you have it, whether you have the low amount, but it does matter. And I think what you brought out and what's been brought out in the New York Times and, and one of your colleagues, Dr. Minna at the Harvard School of Health said, you know, a lot of these thresholds are set for pretty high, like 37, 40. And he feels it should be 35 is too, even too high. So it sounds like, and, and then I think there was a quote one or two. I mean, this blew me away. And I know you mentioned mind-blowing statistics in your In quote, that article. But <laughs> one, one reports that 90% of the people tested in New York, Massachusetts, and Nevada tested positive with barely any virus. This is worrisome, so, really. So this is where the problem comes into play. And this is where rapid testing could also help. So the the nice thing about the PCR assay is it is exquisitely sensitive. So if you just got exposed and, you know, there's a two-week incubation period for this virus, you just got exposed, theoretically, let's say you get tested every day and you get a rapid turnaround time for that test. You could detect being infected very, very early 
and you could be treated sooner, which I'm sure as a physician, there are many circumstances in medicine where the earlier you treat somebody for a condition they have, the better. So that's one advantage of the sensitivity of the PCR test. But a disadvantage is that it's been shown now pretty clearly that a number of people recover, completely recovered from COVID can shed viral RNA long after they are producing any infectious virus. So a, a very sensitive test can also be misleading if you've never been tested before, if you don't know that you had COVID before, you get that test back, it says positive, you don't know what that means in terms of have you recovered? Are you just getting sick? What's the deal? Exactly. This is this is a huge, huge problem. Like let's just think of it this way too, because again, as you say, they're not giving you they're giving you a qualitative, not a quantitative response. So let's just say somebody was infected with COVID in March. And they say, okay, quarantine for three weeks. Let's really be safe. We don't want anybody getting infected. And you go back and you're tested again and you're positive. Oh, you know, with this PCR, go, you know, you can't come back to work yet. Then two, three months later, four months later, you're tested again, depending on what this cycle threshold is. You're still positive. Uh-uh, don't come back to work. And, you know, you're walking around like you're this contagious person, which you're not. We, it sounds like we really need to know this cycle threshold especially, or, you know, like in any other lab where we know what is the tighter, what is, you know, the, the, the quantitative issue, right? I mean, because when, I mean, imagine if somebody was in your lab and you, you know, like whatever, and you, and you, you're in charge, right? Dr. Ruben Maris, is in charge. Hey, look, nobody's coming to my virology lab that's sick with COVID. And, you know, and, and a person tested positive, you say, okay, look, quarantine for three weeks. They say, I'm feeling okay. Come back, whatever, three weeks later, you test them again with the PCR. They're still positive. Would you let them back into the lab? Probably I would um, if they had a positive COVID test before and they were symptomatic. And so that's one reason why people have largely stopped doing this return to work testing because of that very issue. Um, and in, in some cases, so some of these tests, while the patient and what's entered into the electronic medical record is positive or negative, in some cases, depending on where it's done, um, including at Columbia, the physician will actually get, at least for patients admitted to the hospital, they actually will get the CT value. A person in the CLIA lab at Columbia told me that that has been useful in terms of triaging patients and understanding you know, where people might be at during the infection. Um, that can be useful information. Now, granted, that is information for patients that are being hospitalized. So they're already symptomatic. I think it's just as important for outpatients, though, because again, too, I mean, I know Dr. Mina mentioned 35. Is that what you're, like, what did he, they said here? They said a, C, a CT, the cycle threshold of 35, 50% of the cases wouldn't be positive. A CT of 30, 70 cases wouldn't be positive. Well, so here's, here's the issue with picking a CT value arbitrarily and saying that anything above this is going to be a negative. Um, Part of the issue is that there are multiple types of instruments and uh, sets of reagents um, to do this PCR, and some assays use different numbers of overall cycles. So a CT of 30 on one company's machine, one company's test, one type of diagnostic test might not be effect like effectively equivalent to a CT of 30 from one from another. If it's 40 cycles, then CT30 is going to be a lot different than if it's 35 total cycles. So there's there's a scaling issue that comes into this as well. 
this is really where we need the FDA involved because you know that's like almost unacceptable. I, I you know, what I'm saying, and and I think again, twice talking, the CDC stated that a CT over 33. Do you agree with this? Rarely has live virus. I think that that may be true. Um, the problem there is that then you have to try to figure out for patients who have not had a prior COVID diagnosis where they're at in the infection. Because if somebody has, uh, you know, CT 35 today. You don't know if that person is already getting over COVID and that's probably not representative of live virus. Sure, they're probably not shedding enough virus to transmit that day, but let's say that they just got infected and their viral levels are starting to increase. Um, if they're 33 one day and you say, okay, they're negative, but the next day they'd be at CT20, um, those people probably are shedding live virus. And I think this is where those rapid sort of at home or at least point of care, but really do-it-yourself tests might come in handy. And that's um, that would certainly relieve some of the pressure uh, that has been put on the people running the PCR tests because there have been shortages of the PPE that's needed to collect the samples. There have been shortages of the reagents needed to do the test. There's not enough instruments necessarily. So that has been a problem. If you could take over some of that testing with daily testing, cheap, accessible, easy-to-do tests, that people could regularly test themselves with, certainly then they'd only need a PCR test if they tested positive on one of those. Exactly. So I think this is what's so important to bring up. It's almost like it's backwards. We're doing the super sensitive tests when we really need the screening test, especially in so many people that are asymptomatic that we want to know. Like I'll give you an example too. I'm looking forward to getting into my office, the, um, the Abbott um, ID Now test. Uh, just to have it so that any patient that comes in before they're spending, you know, a certain amount of time, we spend a lot of time with our patients, that they get rapidly tested right then. Um, my staff and myself will be tested frequently. You know, it's a, it's a little expensive. It's not crazy expensive to, to do this for peace of mind for everybody. Well, not only that, it's important for surveillance as well. And right now we have transmission um, throughout a lot of the country that is increasing again. We have high levels of community transmission in certain places. And the way to get rid of that, to get that transmission down, is to identify people early on, as early as possible, so you can isolate them and prevent them from infecting other people. And the only way to really do that, since this virus causes such a huge range of different disease presentations, is to screen people frequently. So the PCR test wouldn't be an issue in terms of its sensitivity if people were able to get PCR tests a few times a week, then you would know if, you know, you were negative and then you turn positive, like, looks like you might've just gotten infected. But if we're just testing people effectively cross-sectionally when they need to travel, when they, um, when they are able to get it to return to work, things like that, we don't have any idea what their testing history has been. So it's very difficult to distinguish those early cases that you do want to find from those people who have recovered and are probably not contagious. So it sounds like we really want the point of care. And if that was really widely available, you would love to have it yourself, I'm sure, at Columbia. I know I want to have it in my office. I am sure there are businesses that would say, hey, look, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great for schools? Can you imagine if, I don't know, Sunday night, Monday morning, they were able to do, you know, within reason, do a questionnaire on kids you know, did you travel somewhere? Was anybody sick near you? Even even if you had to parcel out and say, oh, look, anybody who answers yes to any of these, we got to do a rapid test, you know, to, to really make, you know, some normalcy again. I think that would be great. And I think it would 
it would be even better. Um, and so let me let me back up really quickly. One of the principles that Michael Mina and others have used to argue for these rapid tests is that even though they are less sensitive, which has been one of the reasons why people say, no, we should stick with the PCR test, is that maybe you don't need to detect these very low levels of virus. You only really need to worry about it if somebody is going to be shedding enough virus that it would be detected by one of these tests and those people might be able to transmit it to others. I think the best thing possible would be to have this type of point of care testing, but also have something that's more like a pregnancy test where people could test themselves before going to work, for example. Like with a pregnancy test, if you test positive, you're not going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'll just go about my day then. Chances are, if you get a pregnancy test that's positive, you're going to call your doctor. It's going to be the next thing to do. So you would have that test confirmed anyways, probably with a PCR test. So I think that there really is a place, there needs to be a place for this type of testing. It's another tool that we need in our surveillance toolkit to try to identify cases and isolate them as soon as possible, because that's really the only way we're going to get this under control. You know, you helped me segue to a perfect thing that I want to talk to about right now. And even talking about the rapid test, like with pregnancy. Now with pregnancy, you're never a little bit pregnant. (laughs) You are pregnant or you're not. But what's interesting is with infectious disease, you sometimes can be a little sick versus a lot of sick. And I want to ask you this really interesting question I was thinking about a lot before we were going to do this interview today. How important is dosage? I mean, if somebody is exposed to small amounts of coronavirus, let's just say they walked into an elevator where somebody had had active coronavirus and they got just a little bit of, you know, I don't know, a few hundred particles, let's say, if even that much, can you be exposed to something like that and obviously not get sick? I mean, what, how does that work with viruses? I'm always fascinated because like you know, with HIV, again, I, I trained in the HIV epidemic. And I remember we were so petrified of getting needle sticks, whatever, you know, that you, if, I mean, if somebody had a little bit of HIV, I mean, isn't that going to replicate and take over? I mean, does dosage matter in these viruses and the way you get, you know, the way you contract it? Dosage matters a lot. And this is one thing I think mm-hmm. that people don't understand always. So In theory, if I took a single infectious virus particle and put it onto a plate of susceptible cells, those cells would probably get infected, there would be cell death, virus would amplify, I'd be able to detect it. But in the real world, that's not really what happens. And there's a concept of minimum infectious dose that you do need to be exposed to in order to become infected. And with this virus, with SARS coronavirus 2, um, that has to do with both the route by which you're infected by, as well as the dose that you are being exposed to. So most of these infections, um, let's just talk about the the respiratory route, um, since that is probably the major route of transmission. You have to be exposed to enough virus that it can get past all the barriers in your respiratory tract that are designed to protect you from respiratory pathogens. So there's mucus, um, there are cilia that move the mucus around, you have nose hairs, you have physical barriers to viruses getting in. Some of that will depend on you as well. So the virus's receptor, um, what it binds to get into the cell using the spike protein is a protein called ACE2. People have different amounts of ACE2 in different parts of their respiratory tract. And that can vary a lot from person to person. So how much receptor is there for the virus to actually hook onto? And then you have to get enough virus in there um, to be able to antagonize or evade 
the host immune response, because when cells are exposed to viruses, they can recognize that or sense that, um, and they begin secreting these proteins that are called interferons. And interferons put the cells around it, as well as the cell that is detected a virus, into an antiviral state. They start expressing all these genes that can interfere with virus replication, which is how interferon got its name. So uh, you have to get exposed to enough virus to sort of overcome all of these different barriers. What we don't know for this virus is how much virus that actually is. Okay. So, but, so again, wait, I, I want to make sure I'm understanding clearly because this is fascinating to me that, so let's say you are exposed to a, quote, quote, whatever we determine a small amount of virus, essentially your own body will shed, make some mucus, whatever, and just rid it of the body. You're, you're, again, as long as it, it's not really forming an attack wall into your system, you can be exposed to small amounts and you should... You, you will not show an immune response. You will not become infected, whatever. Is that? That's, that's correct. Is that true of other viruses, though? I mean, or is that, is that unusual? Because like with HIV, I mean, that's with a sexual transmission versus respiratory. Does it matter? You know what I'm saying? Like, can you, let's say if somebody was exposed to a small amount of HIV virus from a sexual relation, could they, again, not necessarily get infected with HIV? Yeah, and this is actually a big area of HIV research. So people who are making HIV vaccines or testing HIV vaccines, they do it in non-human primate models. There are challenge models, that's how they test vaccines, where they are exposing the non-human primates that have been vaccinated with these experimental vaccines to, to very small doses, um, repeated doses of either intravaginal or intrarectal HIV or SIV in those, those animals. Um, it's the monkey version of HIV. And it, it does make a big difference also in how vaccines work. And that's supposed to simulate um, what would happen with sexual exposure. And in some of those animals, they don't seroconvert, meaning they don't recognize that HIV is even there until after several challenges. So it's certainly possible. I mean, the, the vagina and the rectum are also uh, mucosal surfaces, and they have some of the same barriers that um, the, the nasal mucosa does as well. Um, and all of those things, the virus has to be able to overcome that as well as find the types of cells that it is prone to infecting. The SARS coronavirus 2 HIV can only infect certain kinds of cells. This is a concept we call tropism. Um, and if it doesn't find the type of cell that has the right receptor and is permissive to infection, then an infection is not going to happen either. So a lot of these different conditions need to be met. Some of this can also be environmental. So Akiko Iwasaki at Yale has shown that for influenza virus, low humidity makes people more susceptible, and it's because they produce less mucus, um, their mucociliary clearance is not as good, and they mount different types of host responses to exposure to viruses. Yeah, that's why I worry about planes. Planes are very dry. I, always, I used to always seem to get sick on planes. I'm very uh, nervous about that. That's why I always drink a lot of water and and uh, do a lot of precautions because, yeah, dry environments, the viruses seem to transmit much better. Dry environments, cold environments, um, anything that is going to, to sort of screw with your natural barriers, um, air conditioning, all of these things have a, a role in this. And that's why, actually, for SARS coronavirus 2, we have not been able to estimate what the minimum infectious dose is for humans. Um, we, can, we can start to do this in animals, looking at it more systematically. But in people in the real world, it's very difficult to say this exposure is going to definitely get you infected and this one is not um, because all of these variables come into play. Now, let me, with the testing also, let me ask you if you have any thoughts or, or 
you know, preferences. You know, there's obviously there's the nasopharynx, that deep, what we call brain tickler test, which everybody really hates. There's obviously you could do a nasal swab, not as deep. And right now there's also saliva. Do you have any preference in the sense that you think one, I mean, obviously I've talked to a lot of people, they say, gosh, we really would like just to have the saliva test. <laughs> we don't want to think multiple times a week stuck up my nose. Is it, you know, do you have to go as deep? I'm using the virus in the, you know, in the, even in the anterior part of the nose or, or the throat. I mean, or does, you know, what, what, what's, what's the differences here? So this is one real problem. One of the nice things about the saliva test is that saliva is kind of everywhere in your oropharynx. And so some of that can get up into your nasopharynx. And of course, your nasopharynx drains into your mouth, as anybody who's had post-nasal drip um, knows. So certainly stuff from the nasopharynx can get into the oral cavity um, and be detected within saliva. So I think that's probably the easiest. You know, certainly the nasopharyngeal swabs go deeper and might get more of the tissues that are likely to be infected. Um, and while that's good in terms of sensitivity, there's a lot of difference from one test to the next in that situation because everybody's nasopharyngeal cavity is shaped a little differently. Um, sometimes it depends on the person who's actually doing the test. And I've certainly talked to people who've had huge operator-dependent differences in their nasopharyngeal swab experience. Is it true too? I've heard they said that people's noses, <laughs> not to get cosmetic or you know racial, but different you know configurations of your nose make you more prone to getting infected or not. Is that true? Yeah, and these aren't really racial differences. There are differences from person to person that you know we all have different shaped faces. We all have unique physical features. Um, we have unique fingerprints. Um, we have unique patterns of our vasculature in our retinas. And we have differently shaped uh, nasopharyngeal cavities um, and nasosinuses, like sinuses. So all of that can, can play a role in the consistency of nasopharyngeal swabs. And they're not necessarily very consistent. But from just an ease of sampling standpoint, certainly nasal swabs that you could do yourself just by basically sticking a Q-tip into your nostril or a saliva swab, which is, or saliva sample, which is basically spitting into a tube. Those things are certainly a lot easier than having a, a medical provider perform a nasopharyngeal swab. So at this point, would you, would you have a problem recommending those saying, okay, look, you don't have to do the nasopharyngeal one. You could do the nasal, you can do the, the saliva. Yeah. And I mean, I think people are moving in that direction. The other issue is that with the nasopharyngeal swab, you need somebody trained to do it. And that means that they need to be wearing full PPE because they have to get right up in your face, right up into your business. And it puts them at risk to collect the sample. Whereas a nasal swab um, or a saliva sample, you could collect yourself. And so there's not that other person. Um, we were even having problems earlier on in the pandemic with the, the actual swabs that are used to collect the nasopharyngeal samples. They're a special kind of Q-tip, as the president once memorably said. Um, they're a very long Q-tip, effectively. And, you know, they're, they have to be specially made. You can't just go to the drugstore and get a Q-tip. You have to use one that's sterile and um, it has to be specially made. And, and so for all these things, it's more resource intensive. It's more personnel intensive and time intensive to collect a nasopharyngeal swab than those other methods. And just a lot of unhappy patients because, I mean, it's not comfortable to get an NP swab. I, I, I'm, I'm gearing up in my office to deal with all these nosebleeds that are going to happen. <laughs> I have to get all the packing material. Exactly. Once you've had it, you're like, 
I, I mean, you're right. You, you don't want to be one and done. You don't want to keep on going through this. Um, it might lead to more social isolation. Um, you know, one of your other things I know you've done research on, and I, I funny, I put it up on my Instagram this week it, with a picture of my staff. It was, it was kind of a, an interesting article in the Times saying how women seem to be more resistant to COVID-19 than men. And, you know, the, the reports are, which it's kind of well known, and I think you've done some work in this in, in other areas with viruses, that, you know, women have a more rigorous T-cell response. Uh, so on the one hand, it does actually give them, um, it gives them an advantage over um, that, you know, women are more, uh, have stronger T-cell response. And so on one, the one good hand, it it's actually helps them fight infections. And maybe that's why we're seeing that more women are resilient to the infection compared to men. You know, men are really getting hit pretty hard. But also, you know, it's also the converse. I guess that's why women have a little bit more autoimmune disease. Is that, is that you know, something that you've seen in your, in your research? That's generally true. And yes, I have studied sex biases. Um, I've studied it in Ebola virus infection. Ebola. Um, wow. Sabra Klein at Johns Hopkins has done a ton of work um, both with influenza virus and now with SARS coronavirus 2. And Akiko Iwasaki at Yale, who I mentioned earlier, has also looked at different immune responses in, um, in COVID between men and women. And there's a very clear severity bias um, that men are much more susceptible to severe COVID-19 and they're more likely to die from it than women are. A very interesting study came out today in science that showed that a significant proportion of men um, in the ICU with COVID-19 had autoantibodies towards interferon towards type 1 interferons, these antiviral proteins that I mentioned earlier. And that's just really fascinating um, because interferon is not really thought to be a, a sex-linked trait. And these autoantibodies are only ever seen in a type of autoimmune disease that's an autosomal recessive disorder, but it's not on the sex chromosome. So there's no sex bias for that disorder. But it seemed like there was a very clear bias that men were more likely to develop these autoantibodies. So that's a very interesting finding that suggests that there may be, you know, there may be more to it than just men don't respond as well to virus infections um, and women have more robust immunity towards acute viral infections than men do. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, it's interesting. It was brought up in one of the um, articles that I saw also that children apparently have a pretty vigorous interferon response. And because they respond early or when they do respond early, that's actually a very good thing. When they don't respond early or more like adults, when they respond late, that's when they develop what's called this cytokine storm, which people are hearing about where all of the, all hell breaks loose and the body goes crazy. You know, my background's in immunology also. And what I've really found fascinating, unfortunately, about this illness and this virus is that it really makes us appreciate and respect what's called the innate immune system or our primitive immune system. You know, people always hear about antibodies and T cells, and those are the sophisticated parts of our immune system. But the innate immune system, just for our listeners, is like the primitive immune system, which, you know, is like the early warning sign in our body, like something is wrong. And thank God, fortunately, it sounds like children, I guess, because maybe they haven't had as much exposures to develop antibodies, their body naturally has higher amounts of interferon, as you were mentioning, is very important in protection against this condition, you know, getting, you know, the severe, severe disease. Yeah. And I wonder to a certain degree, I mean, back to the sex bias issue, how much um, puberty might affect that. So one thing that has been shown very clearly, especially by um, Sabra Klein's work, is that sex hormones 
are very important in controlling some of these immune responses and particularly inflammatory responses. And women who are taking birth control pills, who are taking um, beta estradiol, uh, have are able to fight off influenza at least better um, because these sex hormones are playing a role in some of these innate immune responses or inflammatory responses, which are part of the innate immune system. So it's it's very interesting to to you know, the work that's ahead of us, I guess, because we don't actually know that much about the mechanisms uh, for sex bias for this virus. But it, it may be that, that sex hormones, whether they be androgens um, or estrogens, are playing an important role. And that might explain why children have, are, are less susceptible to severe disease in general. You know, I always tell my patients anyway, too, and they always, especially my women patients, they always agree with me. I always say the women are the stronger sex. You know, they... Uh... <laughs> at least at least immunology-wise. Yeah, I think also in pregnancy. Most most guys were wimps. We would, there'd be a lot less children in this world if it was up to us. You can certainly make the argument that pregnancy is one of the best examples of women having um, really superstar immune systems because... There's so much complicated immunology that occurs in pregnancy, and I actually don't know anything about it other than it's really complicated and impressive. So we've had a great discussion. I'm going to end with one last question I want to ask you. If you were appointed, Dr. Rasmussen, the czar for New York or the country on how we should get life back to normal, what kind of testing, what, if, 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 you know, if the resources weren't a problem, what would you lay the groundwork? Because again, I'm sure maybe you get questions about this from parents say, when can my kids go back to school and I can feel safe? When can we go back to our jobs and our work? What testing would you like to see in place? You know, again, if money and resources were not, you know, a barrier. With infinite resources and infinite money, after I fired probably half the people on the coronavirus task force, <laughs> um, at least the non-scientists who are politicizing things unnecessarily, I would probably implement some type of nationwide routine testing thing. Um, and whether that was PCR tests or rapid tests, um, certainly rapid at-home tests would be would be the easiest to implement. But assuming, let's say we don't have any of those, like assuming I had infinite resources to do as much PCR as I ever wanted, I would suggest at minimum testing people at least once a week. Um, and then you would have, you would be able to distinguish those low virus having people, the people with high CT values you would be able to tell where they were at in the course of their infection. You would be able to respond appropriately. You would be able to make more educated decisions about whether they might be capable of transmitting the virus to others or not. So I would, I definitely, um, one of the first things I would do is make sure that there was adequate testing capacity as well as adequate surveillance. And that means testing everybody, um, asymptomatic or symptomatic exposure to a confirmed case or not. Um, I think one of the ways that we really get out of this is by relying on the epidemiological principles we know that work. Testing, identifying cases, isolating them, quarantining their contacts, testing those contacts, um, breaking chains of transmission. That's that's always worked in the past, and that's what we really need to do um, to, to end this pandemic for us and make it safe for everybody to return to their normal lives. You know, it's true. You know, people, what people forget, and I'm sure even in my lifetime, what you forget, we, in my lifetime, you know, I trained during the AIDS epidemic and it was frightening. It was scary. You just didn't think we'd see our way through it. And I'd have to say more than even just the medications, which have been amazing because as they evolved was the education and, and and people taking the protective, you know, um, measures needed that really have made that really marginalized it and made it a minimal issue. 
And our country and the world has recovered from many viruses. It's just a question of how long. And I, I agree with you 100%. I think you'd be a great czar because I think that if we really um, listened to the epidemiologists and did everything they said, we'd be back to a much more normal life faster than the way things are heading right now. So anyway, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time, educating me and the listeners. As I said, COVID testing can seem confusing at times, and uh, there are all these tests out there, and I don't want anybody to go into a panic. If they get a positive test, get some more information, check with your doctor, and hopefully we're going to all get through this together. That's, that's a great way to end, Dean. Thank you so much for having me here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.